This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Welcome to Coming Clean, the podcast dedicated to common sense environmental dialogue, environmental optimism, and real environmental solutions. This show is proudly powered by Orsted. Welcome to the first ever episode of Coming Clean. I'm your host, Benji Becker. And we are so excited to have on the podcast today one of my new good friends. We've been social media friends for a while and uh, unfortunately a Cowboys fan, but we won't <laughs> hold that against him, Al Robertson. And before I let Al do a little bit of introducing of himself, I'm going to toot his horn a little bit because uh, not only did he come and speak at our ACC Summit this past summer in Washington, D.C. to our you know 300 or so activists that were in D.C., to be there and hear about how our approach can solve environmental issues. But he also is, of course, the infamous uh, part of the infamous uh, Robertson family and helps start the. Uh... This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail from accepting payments to managing inventory Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. The duck commander business in the Robertson family. He's the son of Phil and Miss Kay Robertson. Uh, and a 22-year pastor, but most of all, an environmental lover and a conservationist, or most of all to me, at least, for this conversation. Welcome to the show, Al, and, and you know, welcome the guests uh, today, but but also tell us a little bit about your love for the environment and why you're here. Well, thank you, Benji. It's uh, it's an honor. And I have, I followed you, I think, probably before you started following me. Uh, <laughs> I, think I, I think that is true, which is, and, well, which is you know, something to brag about, a resume it, builder. Well, I was, I was struck that you were so young and yet, and yet you were so passionate about, you know, the outdoors and about the climate. And so that just impressed me. And I probably saw you on somebody else's Twitter feed. And so I started following you and following your organization. And I was just super impressed. And so we connected uh, via social media, which is a great thing about, you know, people talk a lot about the downers of social media. Mm -hmm. And of course there's plenty, but a real positive is I've met some incredible people, you know, all around the country and the world uh, because of social media, uh, several good friends. And so uh, it was exciting. And I really appreciate you having me into DC. And I will say this before I tell you about me, um, I was so impressed uh, with your leadership, with your team, um, uh, just, you know, meeting everybody, of course, everybody's is young and passionate, but, but at the same time, I loved it because they were also very caring, uh, very open to people. And so I thought that was a, a really cool thing. So I, I did you. appreciate you having me. It was a lot of fun. So, yeah, I'm the, uh, <clears throat> I am a cowboy fan. I, I wore my cowboy hat today just for, even though they, nobody can see it, you can see it. So I want to make sure you got a, a good look. I don't, I'll look for some Packer stuff to wear, but I just, I couldn't find any. Uh, so well, that I can change that. I can change that. <laughs> that's right. That's you have to gift me something, Packer. Well, I'll take I, you to Lambo. How about that? 
Now that would be fun. You know, I, I was going to go a few years ago, uh, LSU play Wisconsin there. Oh yeah. And, uh, and we were going and then something happened, you know, we had an appearance or something and we wound up not being able to go, but, uh, you know, Lambo is, is like Yankee stadium or just it's, you know, Wrigley field. It's iconic. And so even though people, I'm not you know, obviously a Packer fan, I'm a Cowboy fan, but at the same time, I'm always intrigued. And I love the idea that it's owned by fans and just, you know, the whole idea behind it is a really cool thing. I, I went to Yankee Stadium a few years ago and um, because we we know uh, the owner's granddaughter and we got to go up in the box, you know, and I'm a Dodger fan. So, you know, I've, I've never been a huge Yankee guy, but it was like baseball royalty. You know, you walk in there and you got Babe Ruth's bat and Lou Gehrig's glove and, you know, just all this really cool stuff. So that's one thing I love about sports. Well, can- Count on that as an open invite to Lambeau uh, so you can have some Packers stuff to wear the next time you're on the show. There you go. I, I'll need to go when they're playing the Eagles or somebody I really don't like. Um, or you can go when they play the Cowboys and I'll let you, I'll let you wear your Cowboys. Stuff. Okay. Well, if you let me wear my stuff, I'll come. Uh, yeah. I'm the, uh, you know, the oldest in the Robertson clan, uh, as you said. And, uh, you know, since I was a little boy, um, obviously we, we've been into hunting and into outdoors, but, you know, I just, I've, I've seen, you know, there's nothing more beautiful to me and everybody has their outdoor thing. And I know you do a lot of treks and, you know, all that kind of stuff. And I'm too old for all granola, that but, granola stuff. There you go. But, uh, mine is more, you know, sitting in a duck blind when I was young, it was up in a big, huge cypress tree. And this is probably a 300 year old tree. And it, it's massive and it's huge and enough that we built a blind in it, in the top of it. And so we're probably 80 feet off the water and to, to sit there and to look as day daylight breaks and, you know, the sun begins to come up in that mist coming off the water. I mean, just as a boy, I mean, I love that. And so now, you know, I'm, I'm busy. I don't get to hunt as much as, as my dad and brother do, but when I go back out there, now it's a cup of coffee and it's still looking at that same thing, even though it's not up in a, in that original high tree. So I think it just did something inside of me, uh, to be a lover of, of what God has created. Uh, and everybody has their different thing. That's beautiful to them. Louisiana. It's a, it's a bayou. It's a, it's a, a cypress tree. It's a Spanish moss hanging, you know, as you're coming in the boat in the morning, it's things like that. And every place has its own beauty. Mm-hmm. I've traveled all over the world through permission stuff and all that. And, you know, I can go to Gambia and Africa and, and travel there and look and see the beauty of every place, you know? And so it's just a matter of, of being able to take care of it. And so I, I love that's, you know, about what you guys do. And so that's kind of been a passion, you know, of mine and our families for a long time. And we were young, you know, we didn't have a lot, the business, you know, wasn't going yet. And, so we just had to, you know, hunt on, on, on public land and, and do what we could do. And so the the best part of being successful is being able to now uh, own property to to build and and not only have, you know, use our conservation techniques, but also to actually see uh, and cultivate wild wildlife. And it's just it's been amazing. Uh, it's been a great journey and a great blessing. Well, I, I love that. And you talked a little bit about this at the summit, your kind of origin story of loving the outdoors and how much that has meant to your family. As someone who is who who grew up in Wisconsin, I understood the importance of hunting and fishing for conservation because my grandparents and parents, you know, had had, had that experience. But for a lot of people, especially in the coasts or in big cities, they don't have that experience. And so, but yet they still care a lot about the environment. And therefore they actually 
feel like hunting and fishing is antithetical to environmental protection. Right. You, I mean, obviously I understand the importance of that and, and, and believe in it as well, but can you explain, you know, as if I was somebody who didn't understand that, like, why, like, why does it seem so backwards and why isn't it actually backwards? Like, why does it make sense for the hunting and fishing community to love the outdoors in itself? And also what does the, what does that community do for the outdoors? I mean, those are kind of two different things, but I would love for you to touch on them. You know, and that's what intrigued me about, you know, when, when you asked me to come speak, because you're right. I think a lot of people, I mean, you get it and it's probably because of how you grew up, but so many people feels like they're at odds with, with the outdoor community, uh, the hunting and fishing community, but you're right. It's a hand in glove. I mean, we, we should be doing this together because if, if you don't have, uh, you know, wildlife habitable, you know, outdoors and you don't have clear streams and no pollution in the water, you, you, we can enjoy what we love to do. And so, you know, we, we're all about I, I, a good example, man, is yeah, I remember the Corps of Engineers came over when we first bought our first kind of large piece of property. And of course it was a wetland. So, you know, there's certain things you have to go through. There's certain things you can do and not do on a wetlands, even if it's your own private property. And so the Corps of Engineers, the closest one, I think, to where we were was in Vicksburg, Mississippi. And so, you know, a couple of uh, core uh, agents or whatever they call themselves uh, came over. And so it was really interesting because they're so used to people buying land and then doing things to it that that would, you know, inhibit, uh, you know, wildlife development. And so they started looking around. They were like, you know, I think we're going to be really close friends because it's obvious you guys are trying to make this more habitable for all wildlife. We were like, yeah, that's the whole purpose. And so I, I think it's that sometimes it's that same idea. Like the, the government will think, well, these people are working against us, but we're not. We want to work together. I mean, I love it when the government has property that they allow people to, to you know, use to harvest game. It's mm-hmm. going to help the game. It's going to help all the deer herds. It helps everything uh, to be able to manage it properly. And I probably didn't know as much about that until the last 20 years about what it takes to to manage wildlife where things don't happen by disease and other things that can just wipe it out. And so we do, we do want to work together with people. And you're right. I understand if you're, from LA or, you know, some, someone you've just never had that experience, but you do love the environment that you would think you wouldn't sync up with some bearded guys down in Louisiana, but we really are on the same page. Uh, and, and, you know, when, when we first started our business, Benji, I don't know if I ever told you this, but I mean, we commercial fished the river. And so, you know, the, we have a paper mill that's there probably 20 miles upstream. And of course, back in the day, um, you know, they weren't regulated. They weren't, they didn't have the proper system to filter what they were poured into our river and they almost ruined it. And so, but we were some of the most outspoken people along with a lot of other people living down river that said, you guys have to do something, you know, about this. We, you're, you're, you're spoiling and ruining not only something that's beautiful that you shouldn't be, but also our livelihoods. And so they did, uh, you know, the government of course stepped in, but then there were a lot of public pressure as well. And a lot from the fishing and hunting community that said, you know, this is right. And, and, and we love you being a a job sponsor in our community, but at the same time, we want our community to be great. And they did, they fixed it. They built a baffling system of waterways that filters everything out. And so they're not putting pollution into the Washtenaw river, which is one of the most beautiful rivers in America. So, you know, we've been there this whole time, either by what we needed or what we had to have and said, you know, we're on the same page. Uh, We just need to think of really creative and good ideas 
that don't, doesn't break the bank uh, that can mm -hmm. help take care of the environment. And, and that totally makes sense. And I also think, you know, for a lot of people not understanding the incentive that a farmer, a hunter, an angler, you know, somebody who they might see as being anti-environment actually has because they rely on it to do the thing that they do for work, like for farming or the thing that they love to do, like hunting or fishing. Obviously, that can be for work as well. That sometimes will make sense. But then the next question often is, well, especially around hunting and angling, if you care about it so much, then why kill the animals? And that is something that I never truly understood until I also went myself hunting and fishing. Can you, to the best of your ability, I mean, I know it's a lot of, you know, it truly is something that you have to experience, but to the best of your ability, why, why do those things go hand in hand? Why do, why do the actual acts of hunting and fishing, why does that actually grow your love for the environment? And what, if it's done right, does that actually do to help the environment? Well, I mean, for one thing, and of course, this is where, you know, philosophically, obviously some people, you know, w from our perspective, uh, we believe that that game was put here along with all animals to be able to not only thrive themselves, but but mainly it's a, it's a cycle, you know, and so you see the cycle from the top down. And at, at this point, and there may be something that changes, but we're, we seem to be at the top of the cycle and we enjoy you know, ducks and we enjoy deer and we enjoy squirrels. And I mean, almost everything we grew up is both, you know, nutrition for us, but also, you know, a duck is nutrition for a lot of things. You know, it, it's amazing. Of course, again, being a creationist, you know, I believe there was a design, but you're talking about potholes and, you know, waterways up in where you're from and, you know, up into Canada and, you know, those ducks growing there. And then for whatever reason, they decide that they're going to all hightail it down south, you know, for that for until it gets not as cold, and then they're going to go back, and they go back to the same places and they breed, you know, the same ways, and so there's this inner beacon, but they're providing protein uh, all the way down, and not just for people. Obviously, that's for coyotes and and you know owls and and birds of prey and a lot of other things as well. So it's a process of that. And so uh, us as people, uh, we're probably, you know, the biggest consumers of different, you know, kinds of game, but all that is not only done to help us, but it manages them as well, because that's what they're designed to do. I mean, that's whether you believe it's a designer, you believe it just happened by way of chance or evolution, that's what they do. And so I, I think one of the things that people misunderstand about hunting and fishing is, is they see it as we're trying to deplete everything but you're like no it, it's it's like forestry if you don't that's big in our area if you don't grow trees back when you harvest trees then you've lost that forever and so you know all of these things are managed to be able to not only have a, a, a greater use and a greater use for people but also that you want it to extend and grow i mean you know you've said this a lot of times before i mean more trees on the planet is a good thing i mean that's helping us do so many different things and that's and from our perspective you know you have to have that to be able to have the kind of game that we love to have and love to enjoy. You know, my dad was, uh, when he grew up, uh, he was in the Red River Bottoms, which is over in, in uh, kind of northwest Louisiana, north of Shreveport. And he tells a story, you know, he was a teenager. They began clear-cutting a lot of that Red River Bottom to farm because it was obviously good farmland. But he really had a hard conscience. I mean, he needed the money. You know, they were poor and he needed the job. But, I mean, he was in tears just having to clear cut those trees. And, you know, some of that property is uh, property and land has been now repopulated with trees. But for a long time, it was just the whole red river just got stripped. 
And so he was like, it was his job to do it. But at the same time, he knew deep down in his heart, it wasn't the best way to do it and go about it. And this was probably back in the 60s. So, you know, those things have impacted him, which therefore impacted us because we grew up hearing those stories. And we understood why it was important to listen, you know, to mm-hmm. listen to people that talk about different ways to have, a, you know, a good environment and, and you know, be able to have a healthy environment. Well, I, I love that. And, and I was hoping you'd bring up the example about the need of kind of the sportsman community for um for kind of maintaining the balance of some of these populations. And this is something I was explaining to one of my friends who didn't understand the importance of hunting and fishing the other day was, you know, just let the, the, you know, the statement was just let them kind of get back to the way they were. You don't have to kill them off. Just let it restore itself on its own. And the reality is that maybe could work if humans weren't on this planet, but we are. And we've developed so much of the land that they lived on for better or for worse. right? Right. That's a whole different conversation. Um, yeah, I would say for overall betterment, but you know, there the, the reality is there. And you can't have an overpopulation of deer in an area uh or an overpopulation of ducks or whatever, because it screws up the entire ecosystem. And because the things aren't completely natural in the way that they would be without humans, they can't just restore itself on its own. So not only do the hunting and fishing communities, you know, fund a lot of these efforts through the you know, the, the taxes and the fees and all the, and the things that happen with the tagging and all of the, the processes around hunting and fishing. And not only do the, does the hunting and fishing community love the environment because you guys spend so much time in it. And and now I'm spending a lot of time doing those sorts of things, but also it's restoring balance to the ecosystem. Of course, there are bad hunters and bad fishermen out there who have bad intentions, but the vast majority of the hunting and fishing community solely wants balance in the ecosystem so that we have ecosystems for generations to come and you need to hunt or fish similarly. You need to manage a forest and maybe for some people, it doesn't feel good to cut down a tree. And maybe for some people, it doesn't feel good to shoot a deer, but you have to do it to restore the balance of our ecosystems to a way that's healthy for the long-term success of that ecosystem. So I just think it's critical that you brought that up. And it's really difficult for a lot of people to understand that because again, if you're living in a city, you already oftentimes feel like, oh, I'm encroaching on nature too much. You know, we've built so much up here and all that. Um, but that's why even the, you know, the most liberal, if you're thinking about it politically, wildlife scientists and, and you know, folks are always supportive of, the, of hunting and fishing and forest management and those sorts of things. So I guess, you know, from your point of view, outside of those areas, where do you feel like people really misunderstand the hunting and fishing community? Is that, is that kind of the bulk of it, do you feel like, or are there other areas where you feel like it's a misunderstood, um, misunderstood community? Well, I think, uh, like you said, I mean, some of it is just kind of, you know, where you're from and, and kind of your experiences. And so if you've never experienced that, a, a good, a good example of that is, a uh, Kirk Cameron, the actor, mm. um, he, you know, he, for some reason, I don't know how he got down to where we are, but he got there at some point and he's from California, lifelong, never hunted, never fished. Um, obviously a, a good person, but, uh, you know, so he, first time he goes out in the woods and he has his, his kids, you know, at this time they were younger, this probably 10 years ago. And, you know, they go out and, but they love it. I mean, and they loved it. So they were a skater, you know, they like skateboarding and, you know, city urban things, but they had never experienced it. And so to get out in the woods 
you know, to see wildlife. And, and to be honest with you, I mean, we harvest game, but we, we watch wildlife more than we hunt wildlife. I mean, mm. we, we love it. There's nothing like to me sitting in a deer blind and watching, you know, 40 or 50 deer just, you know, eat and, and do what they're doing. And it's just, it's amazing. It's just, you see these amazing animals. And so the first time he experienced that and his kids did, they loved it. And so the next year they came back and actually went on a hunt and got their license and paid their, you know, their fees and all the things. And he's been coming every year, ever since to back to Louisiana, even if he's not with us, because it was an experience they never had. And so, uh, you know, again, I think a lot of times it's just a matter of a lifestyle you've never experienced. And maybe the only thing you got from it was something you saw on television, or like you said, maybe it was a, somebody that was bad that that wasn't taking care of, you know, of the environment or, or, you know, their hunting, they weren't doing it the right way. And so I think some of that is just a, a natural kind of blockade. It's like when I go to the city. Mm. I'm never super comfortable because right. I'm not used to that much concrete and that much noise. And so it's just, I'm never comfortable there. I remember <clears throat> the first time I went to New York for the show and it was early on and we just, you know, it, the show was really taking off. And so we're, we're having to go and do all this public relations stuff in the family. And so dad, you know, I mean, he is super uncomfortable, you know? And so we, we go into New York and so, you know, we do our thing and we do our shows. And so as I think we'd flown into New Jersey, into Newark. And so we were at, when we crossed a river and we get into Jersey and it's a little more like what we're used to before we got to the airport, just at least it looked that way. I literally looked over at dad and saw him like, like exhale, you know, like for the, he for the first time in like, you know, three days we were there, he could breathe. And it's because we, we're not, you know, familiar with that experience. Right. And yet, obviously, there's a lot of great people in New York and a lot of friends of ours are there. So sometimes it's just experiencing other things you're not used to and realizing that, you know, you don't necessarily have to be against or for something. You just may not know that much about it. And so I, I think people like you and other people help bridge those gaps, you know, because you're, you're having people talk to each other, you know, about th their experiences, but we're all trying to do the exact same thing. And, and that's been our passion. Like, like I told you, and I love what you said about the generational thing, because, you know, my dad is, is a, a 76 and, you know, for the first time he's, we're realizing that, you know, most of his years are behind him. And, you know, he may still have a few more good years, but it's getting harder and harder just to go hunt and to, you know, just the physical toll that it takes on him. And, you know, I'm getting close to 60 and now I'm looking at my grandsons and I, I want to create and provide something that they can enjoy that I enjoyed as a young boy, like my grandson is now, you know, for the rest of his life and then his children and their children. And so that's the sort of thinking that really makes change and really yeah. preserves what we have. And so you want that to be one, two, three, four, five, six generations. And, you know, as, as much as possible, we're even building our property into a trust that we don't ever want it sold. You know, we, we want it to stay in our family and provide what we've been provided for generations. And uh, I know things will change, you know, I mean, population grows and ebbs and flows, but, you know, we want that little, our little 2000 acres of our little heaven down there to be available for future Robertsons, uh, you know, as, as far as it can be. So that's part of this mindset. And so, you know, we just need to talk about that to be able to help well, make I, it happen. I love that. And, and it's that personal stake that the, 
you know, the hunting and fishing community has, uh, because unless you don't care about the future, which pretty much every person I've met in the sportsman community does immensely, you are, you're far worse off if the environment is worse off. Uh, and, and, and there's a direct correlation between your, you know, love for the environment and the success of the environment, you know, allowing you to continue doing your hobbies as a sportsman. And, and that is, a direct alignment that again, doesn't click with many people. So I'm glad we covered that. And I think you also alluded to kind of the next thing I want to talk to you about, which is kind of the rural urban divide. I mean, I, I grew up in a more rural area. Um, it was a suburban town surrounded by rural, um, suburban sized town surrounded, surrounded by farms. And, um, my whole family basically grew up there and I didn't understand the way that a city person thought until I moved out to Seattle for college and, you know, have now seen that through my work, like you said, in cities like New York and others, but there is this really big disconnect. And I'm glad that you acknowledged the kind of feeling that you had going into a city, because I also felt that way for a really long time um, before kind of living in one for a while. And I feel like that's actually, it's not even political really at the heart of where the disconnect on the environment is. It's almost rural and urban, is it not? I mean, is it people in in urban areas feeling like they know how to make decisions environmentally that don't understand what we were talking about earlier, similar to rural people not understanding, you know, what urban areas can and could do for themselves? I mean, can you talk a little bit about that and what your stance is and how the division is like it is today on the environmental issues and maybe how that plays into it. Yeah, that's a, that's a a salient point. I mean, I I think, and, and we need, we need both. I mean, uh, you know, I I think there's the great things that come out of an urban setting. You know, I'm not one of those. It's just, ah, big cities, you know, it's terrible. Um, You know, there's a lot of innovation. There's a lot I enjoy. I I love when I go to New York, I love going to, you know, theater. I I love to, to see shows. I love to see talented people, um, you know, doing what they do. And so, you know, some of the best chefs in the world, you know, are are in big cities. And so I enjoy that. And and I I really think that urban people, if they had a chance to experience more of, of rural, you know, America, would probably appreciate it as well. A lot of people, you know, will find themselves in a setting where maybe it's family somewhere and it's a different kind of experience. We had a we had a musical. Uh, I mean, in our crazy years of all these things <laughs> about our family, there was a musical called the Duck Commander musical. Did uh, you Faith. sing? I didn't. No, no, it wasn't us. It was professional people. Uh, but it opened in Vegas of all places. And, uh, and uh, it didn't last a long time there because it just wasn't <laughs> quite the connection. I mean, the, I think that what they thought was they didn't, weren't sure about New York, but they for sure thought, well, Vegas, you know, all these people come from the Midwest, they'll go see this musical. But, you know, the problem is people don't go to, uh, to Vegas to really see, you know, wholesome stories about this, you know, Louisiana family. But, uh, there were these two guys who actually there was a team that wrote the music. And it, it, it was fabulous. I, I can't tell you how good it was. And again, it's from a person who's been to a lot of musicals. But uh, the guys, there's two, they're twins, and they're Broadway musicians. They're fantastic. I mean, they're so talented. And they met our family. And of course, they'd never really met anybody like us. And of course, we became fast friends with a lot of the cast and a lot of the musicians. And so they started, they you know would wind up in Louisiana, you know, just for the feel of the family and figured all that when they were working on this project. And since that time, that's been about, 
almost 10, eight to nine, 10, 10 years ago, they've been coming back to Louisiana every summer. They bring their kids, their kids go to summer camp there at our little camp that we have. And then they usually stay about two weeks and then they go back. Cause they're like, you know, as much as we love it here, enjoy the experience, you know, we miss the sounds and the mm-hmm. flavor we're New Yorkers, you know, but they have an appreciation that they never would have had. Yeah. Had we not cross connected and, and now it's a part of their lives. And so, and when they're back in New York doing what they love to do, we go there, of course, we connect and we spend time with them, but it's just, I wish we could have a way to do that more and more to really understand the differences in the two. And instead of it being a, a clash, it could be a, a really a mutual enjoyment of, of what both bring to the table. And so, but, and I, look, I'm a rural guy. I grew up in a small town, Louisiana, obviously, but I understand that people can be xenophobic and, you know, again, say all cities are bad and, you know, there's riots everywhere and they're so dangerous, you know, and you, in the news, you know, feeds into that even more when it's really not that way. There's a lot of good people everywhere you go. So I hope we can continue to do that. I, I think a lot of people that get out of the city and get out into the country, love it. I think if you have the right mindset, you can go into the city and enjoy and and the history of places the same way. So I hope that that continues to, you know, I wish that would melt more instead of grow more into a divide. And I don't know, like I said, I I think a lot of people make a lot of money on trying to keep that divide there. And so, you know, unfortunately, that's kind of part of what it is, especially on the political side. Yeah, I mean, it actually it pains me a lot to hear those arguments because I do feel like it's actually happening more and more as much as I would like to say that maybe we're heading in the other direction, um, which there have been some steps in that, which I'll talk about in a second. But, you know, you hear all that when I go to New York, which I go to pretty frequently for work, you know, I'll go back and even, you know, people who I love will say, oh, you must have just had to like watch your back at every moment. You know, how, what was it like? You know, where was everything boarded up? And and it's like, no, like it has, you know, it's it's nowhere near as bad as what you're talking about. Um, there's always been crime in New York. And, and of course, there's bad policies. And that's a whole different subject that, you know, make things better or better or worse. But the 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 level of disdain of like you're saying like oh there's riots it's just a bunch of you know oversensitive people and they're just trying to come for us and all those kind of stereotypes are often wrong just like you know when i tell people that i i grew up in wisconsin you know i often met on the coasts with oh wow you grew up in Wisconsin. That must have sucked. And I'm like, no, I I would absolutely move back there. I mean, I love that state and I go back there as much as I can. I'm just a 20 something year old trying to see different parts of the country because I am trying to see different parts of the country. But I mean, it's amazing. I bring people either from my team because I'm the president of the organization. I We did a retreat uh, with a, a little over 20 of our staff, uh, in, in Wisconsin, a couple months ago, a lot of them had preconceived notions of the state and they walked away saying, I love this state and I would love to come back. They would have never gone there or even considered going there if I didn't pretty much force them to. But I mean, my friends the same way. I mean, I have friends in Seattle who will come and visit Wisconsin and they, and they're so shocked by how beautiful it is. So all these kind of conceptions and it's ugly or, you know, people are all racist or rude or whatever. It's just, there's so many wrong assumptions on both sides of that. And it bleeds over so much to the environmental side of things Mm -hmm. because, you know, the cities are, you know, trying to do this high tech stuff around electric vehicles and solar and all these things. And, you know, you might 
have an opinion on electric vehicles or solar, but a lot of these cities are making it work for them. But rural areas don't think that it can work at all because it doesn't work in their community. Just like an urban area doesn't understand that it can't just be 100% widespread because it doesn't work in the rural community. Right. And to me, that's at the core of where these problems break down. Do you, do you agree that there are some significant problems on the urban-rural divide as it pertains to the environment, or do you feel like it is more political? You know, uh, that's a good, that's a great question. I, I think it's probably some of both. I, I think it's way more political than anything, but I do think you're right. I think it's on the environmental side. You see that as well, because you, you described it perfectly. I mean, you have to have a lot of horsepower um, in terms of engines and machinery and different things you use to, to farm and to do what, you know, what happens, especially in the Midwest. And that's totally, you don't need any of that stuff. You know, yep. in the city, because you're trying to get around best you can. It's overcrowded. You know, there's probably too many cars already. And so you're trying to make it as as utilitarian as possible. And you're right. It makes perfect sense to have smaller, you know, better, you know, better emissioned vehicles and things like this to make life better. And so to recognize that both ways. And, and I think that's really the way forward. And I've never asked you this, but I'm assuming since you are not afraid to call yourself conservative, that you're probably you know, uh, a lot of people look at you in, in the, in the environment you're in and saying, well, this guy, what, what's, what has he got to bring to the table? You know, because if you're not, a, if you're not left leaning or left, mm -hmm. there's no way you can even understand it, but you do, you yeah. get it. And so I, I think that's a bright hope. That's why I've, I've followed you and your organization so closely, because I think it will be conservatives that bring all, all everybody to the table and yeah. says, look, because the conservatives have kind of ignored it, even the faith community, which is a big part of obviously what I've been in, because we believe there's a creator. So we trust in God who created everything. It, it's made us very lackadaisical as, as a people in America, I think, as to, to not take it seriously and to not say, look, he, he you know, just because there's a creator. We're here to steward that creation. And so our job is to make it as, as great as possible for everybody. And, and you don't have to be a believer to be able to enjoy right. what God has created. So I think, you know, that we need to be inspired, you know, mm -hmm. to be a part of that as well. So I think yeah. the more you see conservatives rise up and say, we want to be at the table talking about practical ways to do this, the better. And so since urban and, and not everywhere, but since urban tends to be, especially coastal urban, uh, tends to be bluer, uh, you have that divide. But again, see, it goes back to politics instead of saying, but we can agree that we all want a cleaner, better planet. And we, we want to with streams that are that are full of fish and full of all kinds of an ecosystem that's fantastic for everything that's enjoying it, not just people. So that's where we have to get to, I think, in, in a bigger way. And and you guys are going to help do it because you got the what I love about your youth is that, you, you know, you're going to be here talking about this, you know, for the next 50 years and hopefully growing up other people alongside you that'll be part of that, you know, part of that discussion. So, yes, I think there is some environmental difference, but I think if if we look at it and what's the best for every area and not just try to necessarily shoehorn one particular philosophy onto everybody, uh I think we'll we'll do we'll do fine. We'll be, we'll do great. America's doing so much better than you know than people are led to believe. I mean, you look at other countries that are really, you know, having a lot of issues with not taking care of the environment. 
And I mean, we need to be leaders. I, I agree with that 100%. I don't necessarily agree with all the, the ways that some people are trying to get us there, but I definitely am all for making it the best possible place we can be. I, I completely agree. And I, and, you know, we'll talk about a couple of, you know, broad ways of how we can get there in, in a few minutes, but before we do that, I, I think the, the conversation you just kind of touched on around the, the political and, and kind of this, yeah, it's, 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 the different geographies of this country or the world breed a different view on environmental, you know, issues. If you live near the coasts, you care about coastal issues. If you live in the Midwest, you care more about farming and lake issues and all those issues are different. And so this kind of one size fits all approach that we hear about just doesn't work. And I think a lot of times people in cities compare themselves and say, Hey, if it worked in LA, it can work in New York, or if it worked in Chicago, it can work in Atlanta. And and maybe that is true for those cities, but for the, you know, there probably are a lot of differences even there that you know people wouldn't realize. But outside of those cities, the geographies are vastly different, and you cannot put these blanket kind of situations on them. And that's where I feel like the Democratic Party, the left leaning side of this issue, I of course have my problems with the right side of it, as as you know, the organization was founded to to get them to the table. But that's where the left you know has really screwed up this issue is just this inability to understand where rural people are coming from, understand where conservative people are coming from and understand that this is so much more complex than what, you know, Boston can do is what the rest of Massachusetts can do. And it's, it's pretty hard in a state as small as Massachusetts. Imagine a state, you know, like Montana or or Texas, it just gets a lot more complicated depending on where you're at. So I think that misunderstanding or or lack of understanding that comes from a lot of these decision makers is a big reason why we haven't made any progress uh, because the moment those things are tried, they don't work. And we're seeing that happen still today with these kind of blanket ideas. Um, but But I love what you said about kind of where conservatives should be heading. And I would love to just, you know, have you talk a little bit about if you're a young person who has been you know, doesn't really see themselves as far left. You're left of center, middle or right of center. You care a lot about the environment. You feel a little bit disenfranchised by the way the right has handled these issues. What would you tell them as to why they should care if conservatives engage? You hinted on it a little bit, but why would it matter if conservatives engage? Why not just buy into the left, you know, the left's ideas or try to, if the left's ideas are bad, you know, spear them, you know, in the right direction why conservatives and why why would that matter well i think one one of the reasons why is because you're talking about you know basically half of the population um and when they're disengaged on any issue that's not good um because you know you're talking about resources and people's ability to come up with creative solutions um uh, if we just kind of get in our side camps like we've done in politics and kind of created what we see now where every election cycle is down to this, you know, thin margin, and then you run back into your camps and you don't really progress in terms of getting things done. That's not, that hasn't been healthy at all. So we see the picture of unhealth. And I think you could apply that to environmental issues for sure. And so I think it is important to engage. And so you, you, and you're right, you're going to find things. I mean, I think for a long time on the Republican side or the, or the right side, because it was pro-business, um, you know, a lot of issues, you know, like that pro commerce. And so it became, well, they don't care about the environment because all they care about is building big factories and big, big things that are going to, you know, do bad things to the environment. And there was probably a lot, some truth in that. 
in terms of, of not regulating when regulation needs to happen. Um, the government should be that arm that looks out for everybody. You know, it's interesting because you think about hunting from our perspective, it's mostly state driven, state legislature, state laws, but you know, ducks and geese fly across all the states. And so the federal government, because they're migratory, just like the interstate system or anything like that. So the government is, is in charge of regulating uh, conservation for ducks from top to bottom, from, you know, that the, when you start on the U S border all the way down to when you get to Mexico. And so it's really interesting because when farmers were farming right up to wetlands and, and little ponds and little low areas in their fields, you know, ducks couldn't grow because, you know, pre- too many predators were getting them. So the government stepped in and says, you know, you have to have a buffer around there. Well, hunters way down where I am in Louisiana, we cheered that because we thought that's what we want. We want, you know, us working together. We want farmers still farming, but we leave us, you know, leave a little room for those ducks to grow uh, and nest. And so that's the sort of kind of thing when you're talking about engaging, you have to engage all sides together mm-hmm. and on any issue and, and figure out how can we do this, you know, in a bipartisan way to, to have solution. Well, if you don't engage one side, you're never going to have that. that again, and not just the, you know, I'm not trying to just pat you on the back the whole podcast, but I'm telling you, Benji, I'll your take work, it. Your, your work is so important because you're willing to, you engage on the left because you're going to have far more left people that you're going to engage with about environmental issues than you are on the right, even though you're bringing more to the table. So it's people that are willing to enter the fray and try to bring all people uh, to an understanding of the importance of the issue uh, that matters. And, and, and so I, I think that's, if you just punt, if you just say, okay, I don't care about the lefties or I don't care about those people on the right, then you're going to find yourself in a place that's not going to have much progress and you're not going to have many solutions. And I love what you said. You're right. These are complex issues. These aren't just easy things and for a lot of different reasons. And so I think we have to you know, move forward saying we got to do the best job we can possibly do. Yeah. And I love that because it just shows that when you don't sit at the table, your voice isn't heard and because they're so complex and they're so such a it's such a diverse issue set uh compared to even like taxes or something um you know this is affecting everybody in a different way environmental issues if you're different environmental if you're only if your community with its own environmental issues and and ecological systems aren't being represented then they're losing because no one is representing them at the table and you know i'm a firm believer that you will always be able to find common ground with somebody on something and on this issue there actually is a ton and we just don't even try and that's where the the biggest you know honestly frustration probably in my life has come from so far has been seeing how to the severity how bad that problem is because i thought it was bad when i started this organization but the more that i get to know liberal conservative and you know non kind of political people, the more I realize how much common ground there actually is, but we're all talking past each other with these assumptions based on things we've already talked about in this conversation that just muddle our ability to go anywhere further. And it makes us all worse off because not only do we all share the same planet and share the same air and, and, you know, share the same water, but we also 
all have our own environmental issues that we need solved. And the more that we delay them all because we're not at the table, because we're bickering, because we're talking past each other, uh, it sounds like kumbaya talk, but it just is true. And and um, maybe that's not possible to do that sort of dialogue on a different topic right now, but on this one, it should be. And and that's where you know the the idea of what we're trying to to do is is right now. But climate change is obviously the the hot button topic that partially started the, the the divide to where it is right now. And without mm-hmm. getting too much into the the issue itself, I would love for you to kind of, you know, on, on the on the topic of this, talk a little bit about where you think the left and the right have gone wrong on that topic of of climate change that seems to be, you know, on the top of a lot of people's minds because uh, they're scared of what the policies are going to do or because they're scared that the policies aren't doing enough. Yeah, I think uh, that's a good observation. I, I think the 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 biggest issue on both sides is, you know, you know, on the left, you know, everything that happens in a bad way is a result of climate change, and on the right, so you don't want to be that guy. On the right, you're like, so nothing, <laughs> nothing is affecting climate. Like it's all you know, bunk, and it's all you know. You shouldn't worry about any of this stuff. So that's the two extreme positions. Obviously, the truth is in the middle, where there are things that you're seeing that are happening that we should be looking for a solution, whether it's things we can control or things we can't. Obviously, some we can. And so I, I think that's where you have to find the commonality because yeah, I'm like that. I, every time there's a hurricane or something bad happens, it, it's not necessarily, I mean, there's always been a lot of these things that happen. So it's not necessarily the the result uh, of what climate change is, but certainly the climate is changing. And if you, if you're just one of these people that just say, I'm a climate denier is what they call yeah. you, but you know, the, where you say nothing, I, there's obviously a lot of problems that we should be looking at in big ways. Um, some of the ideas you have come up like reparation most recently, and some of these other things, I mean, most people are just like, how could we possibly afford this? But we do need to have resources that go in to create clean environment for everybody. And so, you know, to deny that is is not healthy. And so you're right. I think there's been on both sides of the aisle, there's certainly been, you know, whether it's too much, everything, you know, the sky is falling or you shouldn't be worried about any of this stuff. Who cares? Neither one of those is healthy and good mm-hmm. for us. And so we have to be able to, again, have a decent conversation you know, at what can we do? What can we concretely do? Uh, we are a wealthy people and we should be using a lot of our resources to make our planet better. Um, primarily, we're going to be the most concerned about the continental U.S. I mean, because this is our home. This is where we live. This, you know, this is what we protect. But the other parts of the planet also obviously have an impact on that. We understand that from a geopolitical uh, standpoint. So why would we understand that from a, an environmental one? So obviously what you'd like to see in, in the future is sometimes you see these populist or conservative, um, you know, governments rise in different nations. I'd love to see them be right up front with saying, okay, we're not going to do some of the things you're laying out because we think that's kind of crazy, but here's what we will do. Here's what we can do. Here's what we're offering. And so I think if you started seeing that more, maybe you'd see more of a working together. Because uh, the way it is now, it's almost all left. You know, the the a lot of the world leaders get together and and they are trying to do some things. But uh, you know, again, you're leaving half of the population out of the conversation. That's exactly right. And I think 
you know, your point about the, you know, everything's due to climate change or nothing is happening at all. That is, that actually speaks to so many threads that we've talked about just in the last, you know, 30 minutes or whatever this has been, because it's this all or nothing approach, you know, it's, it's all one way or it's all the other way. And, you know, it's all, you know, all rural people are bad. So I'm not going to listen to that. All urban people are bad. I'm not going to listen to that. You know, it's, it's all junk science or it's all going to kill us tomorrow. You know, it's just, we, we keep getting further and further into those corners, which is a stressful place to be because those positions are not fun positions to have. I mean, if you hate all urban areas, that's a lot of people you hate. And if you hate all rural areas, it's a lot of people to hate. And if you think all junk science is, then you're going to be scared of every policy around climate change. And if you think that, you know, climate change is going to kill us tomorrow, then of course that's stressful as heck too. And, and, you know, there's, so much wrong with with us moving into those corners and i think both sides are to blame on on the climate side because you know they find that it's just way easier to go to the opposite end of where the other side is and so they keep going further and further into that and you know maybe that person who's saying that extreme statement or the party that's doing it is better off in the short term but you know we're all worse off because we're you know, not having that, you know, discourse and we're not talking about balanced solutions. We're just talking about crazy rhetoric that, you know, doesn't really help anyone out. And, and, and we're currently there, but I think we're getting closer to a place where at least there are some people, uh, basically leaving that divide and, and trying to find some sort of synergy, even if it's only a a percentage of the time. Um, so we're limited on time, speaking of time. And before I give you a moment to say a few final words, I have a few rapid questions, uh, rapid fire questions for you that All I think right. should be pretty fun. And then we'll wrap up uh, after that. But if you're ready to go, I'll, I'll hit you with them. Hit me with it. All right. Favorite breed of duck. My favorite is the green wing teal. Um, I've always thought it was the most beautiful bird. It's the best to eat, uh, cause they have a rice diet, uh, but they're beautiful. The male is just quite simply, uh, the, the most beautiful duck to me. Well, those ducks better watch out cause that you just made it pretty, pretty appealing for those who uh, are interested in duck hunting. Uh, most underrated Southern state. Most underrated Southern state. I would say, uh, I would say probably Mississippi, uh, because, you know, I, I have a place in Alabama and in Louisiana and they both have, you know, they're well known for a lot of different reasons, but a lot of people don't know a lot about Mississippi, but there are some fantastic uh, people there, um, that, that live in that state. And, uh, and, you know, they, they they've had some really, uh, more innovative things that people give them credit for. They're, 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 they're low in some categories that, that I know they want to do better in, but, uh, it's, it's, a, it's a good state with a lot of good people, especially along the coastal area where I am. Love that. Okay. Favorite dessert. And this is, this is coming because there's a rumor that, you know, you've owned a store with your wife called uh, Missy K's sweets and treats. So I'm going to need you to, you know, you, you have a lot of knowledge about this. So this is an important answer. So my, my personal favorite is uh, my mom's coconut pie. Um, since I was a kid, it was just the fave. I mean, she, it's, it's kind of a, it's kind of like a, almost a banana pudding center. So obviously it's got coconut in it and banana pudding is another high one on the list, but I would say coconut pie is probably my favorite. 
uh, what's interesting now is mom is kind of getting older. And so she doesn't do as many things, but now my, my daughters and granddaughters, uh, are all cooking her recipes. And so it's been kind of fun to see now the, the two generations of, of Miss K's, uh, famous recipes being, uh, being passed on to the future. So we're going to fatten people in our family, uh, into the next two or three generations. So. Hey, if it tastes good, it is good. That's, 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 <laughs> that's the right. philosophy that you just got to live by. Uh, all right. Two more best outdoors wear brand. Well, uh, since we're under contract, I guess I would probably, <laughs> <laughs> I, would probably I swear they didn't say, tell us. I don't even know I who would it probably is. have to say under armor and real tree. Uh, but, uh, actually, uh, all of the stuff now is so great compared to stuff from 40 years ago. Uh, but it's so much the way they go about design now mm. through pictures and obviously three dimensional imaging and four dimensional imaging, it makes it so it looks so good. I mean, you know, and, and I've been in the woods before and seen people wearing, you know, a lot of different kinds, but especially the real tree stuff that literally, if they don't move, you can't see them. You never know they're there. So it, like everything else, technology has made it a, a lot better. Yeah, I've become a big Under Armour fan over the last few years, especially with how much they're dedicating resources into the United States and trying to to do that for a whole host of reasons. But also, by the way, that's pretty sustainable. Okay, last question. Most attractive Robertson. <laughs> and this is well, inspired by a comment you made at the summit. Uh, well, of course, you know, it, it, would you. it would have to be me. <laughs> But, but my, my brothers might argue, but, but I did, I probably said this at the thing, my wife says that I'm the best looking Robertson, which I appreciate, uh, anytime your wife says that, but I do have to, it would be, it'd be great. It's better than her saying that your brothers are more attractive. Than exactly. You. And I realized the bar is very low. So I, I'm stepping over a low bar to say I'm the best looking Robertson. That's not too hard when you look like my family does. Hey, well, that's a, I, I, I I definitely disagree with that, but I love that. And uh, it's a good line because, you know, someone's got to boast it. And if your wife said it, then it, then it's true. There you uh, go. That's, that's what I've learned. So, well, that that is amazing. And, and, and the whole this whole conversation is amazing. I've really enjoyed it. And, and truly, I mean, your leadership just wanting to engage on this issue is appreciated beyond belief because so many people aren't willing to sit at the table because of different stereotypes and, and understandably, and, you know, obviously we wish it wasn't that way, but you represent such an important community of people who love nature and have followed you for, you know, now decades who care deeply about it too. And, um, you stepping into this arena, even just speaking at the summit, coming on this podcast, and I know you do so much else in your personal life to, to, to just love and support the outdoors. It just means, means the world and, and it means the world to me, but it also I'm sure will mean the world to the audience listening to this. And it meant the world to our activists this past summer. So I truly appreciate it. Well, you know, you, you having me come, I, I appreciate it because I want um, people in my, the communities that I spend the most time in the faith community and the hunting and fishing community to understand the importance uh, of this issue, because I think it's, like I said earlier, it's easy for us to not, be engaged and to be supportive of groups like yours that are really on the front line of having these conversations of making a difference and of engaging uh, all sides. And so I hope to see your group inspire more groups uh, that are willing to, you know, just be upfront 
about being a conservative, but at the same time being somebody that loves what God has created. And so I think we have to be supportive of that, be aware of that more and be engaged more um, in any way, whether it's to, you know, provide resources for it or just, you know, lend our voices to say we're, we're supported. We're behind you guys a hundred percent. Well, I couldn't, couldn't have said it better myself. And uh, I'm truly excited to keep working with you in the years to come and, and continuing our hopefully budding friendship. And, uh, and thanks again for being here onward, my friend. Yeah, you're very welcome. And I appreciate you growing that mustache. You know, you're going to, you're going to work yourself. You're going to work yourself into a beard as you, as you grow into your maturity. If I'm lucky by the time I'm 75, I'll have a beard. (laughs) That's awesome. (laughs) Thanks again. All right, buddy. And before we jump, the coming clean podcast is grateful to be powered by Orsted, a wonderful company strengthening America's energy security with reliable and domestic clean energy. Through its integrated renewable energy solutions, Orsted is creating American jobs, investing in American communities, and driving American innovation, all while preserving our country's natural habitats. A clean energy future truly connects us all, and Orsted is helping lead the charge. To learn more, visit us.orsted.com.